I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. Welcome, welcome. We are sat in a lecture theatre. We are. They've let us out again. In Birmingham. In Birmingham. Thrilling. Here we are in the West Midlands, but why would we be here? <laughs> Agnes, why are we in the West Midlands? No offence to anyone that lives in the West Midlands. <laughs> but why would we I actually really be? like Birmingham, but why are we here specifically? You do keep talking about how much you like Birmingham. I do. We are at the Conservative Party Conference. Indeed. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, we've just run an event, haven't we? Yeah, we've just had a fantastic event, actually, uh, a fringe event which Chatham House has run in partnership with the City of London Corporation with Nikki Morgan, MP, who is the chair of the Treasury Select Committee, and a couple of Chatham House Associate Fellows, Anan Menon and Linda Yu, uh, and the City of London's Policy Chair, Catherine McGuinness. Yeah, so it was all chaired by... Liam Halligan mm-hmm. from The Telegraph, yeah. who actually did a really great job, yeah. I thought. he'd like It was a really wide-ranging discussion, such a, a range of takes on the future of UK trade and whether global Britain can be a reality. Yeah, and it's really good because we're talking about this and there's no way of you to listen to it, really. Yeah, you just have to it. take it at face value that it was great. Yeah, we also... <laughs> or you can to... check it out on social media. There was uh, occasional commentary. <laughs> okay. Um, we also went to the best drinks reception last night oh my goodness me it was amazing so i'm drinking with the fishes great start so what so why would you yeah so what would you you think if that was a thing drinking with the fishes what was it it was drinking with fishes literally it was at the birmingham aquarium the sea life center um which was amazing and yeah, it was just a drinks reception, but you got to go into the aquarium and see the penguins. You and get the to rays. look at. You got to see everything. There were rays, sharks, turtles, uh, jellyfish, flipping seahorses, <laughs> an octopus. Yeah, I know. It was great. It was really exciting. I know. It was. It was probably the best drinks reception that I've ever been to. Me and too. And I think we need to up our game. And you know, I've got married. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> it was better than my own Crikey, wedding. I've been to some weddings. That You've been were to not some as good as this. Is that drinks reception? Yeah. Um, right. Who did we speak to this week, Ben? This week we've got two cracking interviews. I spoke to Christoph Titecker, who is an academic <laughs> at the University of Antwerp in Belgium. And he has written recently for international affairs on the ivory trade in Uganda. Ooh. You could try and sound more genuinely <laughs> no, sorry. excited. That is really exciting. No, it's it's really fine. interesting. Like, that's staying in as well. Okay, um. <laughs> okay that's yeah. really exciting. So, illegal wildlife. Illegal wildlife, yeah. Yeah, I spoke to Sarah Churchwell about her new book, Beyond Behold America, A History of America First and the American Dream. Amazing. And, yeah, we had a really good discussion about the historical use of like America first and where the American dream American dream came from and where it is now and where this all fits into Trump basically Amazing. into Trump fits into the current climate with Trump Amazing let's have a listen I'm here with Sarah Churchwell, who is the Professor of American Literature at the University of London, to talk about her new book, Behold America, A History of America First and the American Dream, which is published in the UK by Bloomsbury and out now, and out in the States on October the 9th and published by Basic Books. Thanks so much for joining us, Sarah. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I wanted to ask first, before we get into the sort of the main content of the book, why you decided to look at those two different ideas together, the American dream and America first? Mm. <laughs> well, um, I suppose the, the shortest answer to that question is uh, two words, Donald Trump. Um, of course, Trump was using both phrases a lot in his campaign and then in his inauguration, but he was using them in unexpected ways. So 
he, you know, and it was much commented on at the time, right, that he was saying that the American dream was dead, which is not traditionally what American, um, pe- you know, people campaigning for the American presidency have said. Um, you know, they tend to profess faith in it and to, to aggrandize it, and he was diminishing it. So people were commenting on that. And as it happened, I had been looking into the history of the phrase American dream for a while. It really came out of my research into The Great Gatsby. I wrote a book about Scott Fitzgerald and The Great Gatsby a few years ago. And the thing about about that book is that although everybody knows The Great Gatsby as the great American novel on the American dream, not only does the phrase American dream never appear in that novel, it wasn't a catchphrase at the time. If you had said to Scott Fitzgerald in 1925, you're writing a book about the American dream, he would have said, what are you talking about? And because of that, I became interested in tracing when exactly the phrase American dream did emerge history, uh, American historians have long known that it was popularized in 1931, and that's a pretty common fact. But that's not the same thing as when did it emerge and what did it mean and kind of tracing a genealogy of the phrase itself, Mm -hmm. rather than tracing a genealogy of the idea, which is what most people have done in the past. There are reams of books tracing the idea of the American dream. But that actually presupposes that the phrase the American dream means that idea, and then tracing that idea back through history. And if you you flip that inside out and you say, I'm not going to presuppose I know what it means, but I'm just going to look at what Americans talked about when they talked about the American dream, you find something different. So I'd been doing that for a while. And what Trump was doing and what he was uh, saying fit into that research I'd been doing in that genealogy. And then he started using this phrase, America first. And again, that was much commented on. Um, but the commentators all said that this was a worrying phrase because it was because it began, they said, with Charles Lindbergh and the America First movement of the early 1940s, which, of course, was an isolationist movement to keep America out of the Second World War. And that's perfectly true, except that it's not where it began. Mm-hmm. And again, I knew this because of my research into The Great Gatsby, because America First was a really prevalent phrase in the 1920s. And if you research the 1920s in depth and American political culture in that time, as I had done, you see it everywhere. And it meant something different (laughs) then. And so again, I was kind of aware that there was this prehistory that was being left out of the conversation. And as I say, Trump was already bringing the ideas together himself. So I wanted to bring them together in a different way to create a, a framework within which we could understand American history as something that I don't think it's at all inevitable that Trump would be in the ascendancy, but he's also not as much of an anomaly as he might seem. And so I wanted to kind of realign certain facts in American history in light of what we know now, which is that Trump was going to happen. Mm. And the thing that struck me, I think, about the book is just how much research you had, how much (laughs) reading you did. It's astonishing. So I, I think maybe... Maybe now we can look at the two ideas mm. separately because it's, it's a really sort of big thing and try and then tie them <laughs> Tell back me about together it. again. I, know, I don't know how you did it. Um, so the American dream, I mean, the thing that really comes out is that the idea is older than we than we think. And it's also more left wing in many ways. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's the most important thing to me, right, is that the idea that most Americans have inherited, including me, I and mean, it's certainly what I thought when I first started looking into it, is that the American dream goes at least back to, you know, say the Statue of Liberty and Emma Lazarus's poem, Welking, Welcoming Immigrants to the United States. A lot of people would associate it with that kind of ethos of, you know, the, the land of opportunity and where America, uh, immigrants can come and become Americans and make good and um, and the land of, of prosperity and meritocracy and, um, and as I say, a kind of personal individual opportunity. And I think that's what most people now mean by the phrase. They may or may not think, immigra- you know, they may have different ideas about how immigration fits into that. Um, but most people tend to use it to mean individual opportunity, um, the chance to, as I say, to make good. We associate it with rags to riches, with the Horatio Alger ethic, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, enterprise, you know, all of those kinds of good old American mm-hmm. values. And all of, all of those values are, of course, old American values, and they are uh, um, very much embedded in uh, American history, and it would be foolish to say otherwise. But what's interesting is that the American dream as a phrase was not used to espouse those ideas. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it was used to describe something that was in an earlier time known as the American creed. And the American creed is a way of talking about the foundational democratic principles of the United States. So it's the principles of self-government, of liberty, of equality, of justice, um, and, and the fundamental ideals of a liberal democracy. 
So uh, calling it the American creed is a way to kind of disentangle all of the, the baggage that the phrase American dream comes with and say, we want to talk about those kinds of foundational ideals. And what happened was that at the turn of the century, when the, the previous Gilded Age was uh, coming to a close, um, monopoly capitalism had taken over America, inequality was rampant. And in fact, another phrase that's familiar was coined at that time, which was the idea of the 1% and the 99%, because inequality had become so rampant. And the American dream emerged as a way uh, on the progressive left to critique monopoly capitalism, which would become corporate capitalism, um, to critique the idea of vast private wealth, which was by definition depriving others of opportunity. It meant that there was opportunity and wealth only for the few, not for the many. And oh, the, the critique was, if you allow this kind of inequality to get a stranglehold on the United States, it will be the end of the American dream i.e. the American creed, the American dream of equality, of opportunity, of justice. That So it, it always emerged out of a debate about capitalism and inequality, but the irony is that it took the opposite side. It, so it was against free market capitalism, arguing for regulation, for breaking the trusts, for saying that there needed to be, that America needed to create safety nets, that the United States government, which of course had never done that before, needed to create various kinds of safety nets. And eventually that argument would result in the New Deal of FDR, but it would take decades to do so. So the American dream emerges on that side of the conversation, whereas now it's used routinely by commentators on the right to defend free market capitalism. And indeed, many of them would say that the American dream is antithetical to social democracy or any any kind of curb on pure radical free market capitalism. And the irony is that the American dream was coined in order to advocate exactly the opposite position. And it, and it does now, at least from an outsider, um, seem very much focused on wealth, mm. actually. You know, it is that rags to riches and the riches is the bit. It's not necessarily about becoming more educated or traveling. It's about having money yeah. in the bank. Yeah. How did that switch happen then? <laughs> That's a long story. People should read my book. What happened was that there was people kept trying to remind each other that America had bigger dreams, that it had better dreams, higher ideals. And that it was supposed to be about, as you say, self-fulfillment or self-enrichment, spiritual enrichment, not material enrichment. And that prosperity was in there, but it wasn't supposed to be the only thing. And money making was not supposed to be a value. It was supposed to be what enabled you to fulfill other kinds of values. Um, but money making was always in there, you know, yeah. and, um, you know, greed is always in there. It's mm. part of I th I'm afraid it's, you know, I'm, I'm afraid I believe that it's right there in the human psyche. And so and as with all of these things, right, America is just emblematic. I don't think it's exceptional. I think it's it's uh, it's symbolic. What happened um, was that capitalism started taking over. And, you know, with the expansion of the middle class after the Second World War, there was a sense that maybe prosperity could come to all and the growth of the middle class. That was when ideas like that every generation should do better than the generation before it started to take hold. Actually, that's only been true for two generations, right? But we treat it as if it was a truism and as, as if something has gone wrong that we can't do that. But it only happened for about 40 years when people went from extreme poverty mm. to relative affluence to basic prosperity. And then there was this idea that it could keep expanding and expanding and expanding. But the um, when it happened was after the Second World War. And it happened um, when, I mean, one way of, of trying to identify the shift, and, uh, and, and I should say, I'm not blaming him for this or saying that he uh, created it, but rather that this speech reflected it. Um, Harry Truman famously gave a speech in which he uh, said in 1947 that freedom of enterprise would become an American right. And again, that's a phrase that most Americans would probably tell you went back to the founding documents, to the founding fathers, freedom of enterprise. It actually dates from 1947. Mm. And the idea that freedom of enterprise was somehow an inalienable American right to be ranked with uh, um, equality and and justice and equality of opportunity and things uh, very rapidly embedded itself. But, but the, the distinction between saying that there should be opportunity to pursue success and saying that 
that became some kind of entitlement to success and that success would only be measured in material terms had been happening all along. That's why the debates were happening. You don't have a debate where, n- where nobody's arguing for materialism. So that was always there. And it was just gradually that started to take over to the point where now many Americans, in my view, have lost sight of the idea that the American dream could ever have meant anything else or could ever mean anything else. I mean, one of the, the examples that I found the most striking and the most ironic is one of the very earliest instances of the phrase the American dream. And it's actually from 1900. And it's um, the phrase un-American dream. And it's an article that says that resentful multimillionaires will destroy the American dream because they don't believe in equality, because they want to be treated as a special class. And they'll destroy everything um, if they aren't treated as a special case and if they're not aggrandized, if they don't, if society doesn't match their megalomaniac expectations. And it's a little bit hard to read something like that in the current climate. And when one thinks about resentful multimillionaires, there is a certain person who leaps to mind. Who we will come to. Um, The thing that's always struck me about the American, the the idea of the American dream is that America is so vast and it's made up of so many different states, you know, and you can be um, arrested for something in one state that is encouraged in the next state. And so this idea of having things to to unify yourself Mm. around, and that's, for me, has always sort of seemed to be the explanation behind the the flag. Mm. And and also this concept of the American dream, Mm. like we can all do it. Yeah. This is what unites us. Yeah. Um, But it's interesting that you say that you think people don't think that that's possible anymore. Well, I'm not quite saying that. I think that... uh, A lot of people, maybe. Well, it's not that they don't believe in those ideals. It's that they don't think of that as the American dream. Yeah. And um, and and I think that to me that that divorce of the two is is a real problem to think that there's a dream called prosperity and that's what you should really focus on to the detriment of remembering that there are other things we're supposed to be dreaming about, Mm -hmm. that democracy is also an American dream, that justice is also an American dream. And right now we're in this kind of age of rampant selfishness where, you know, a lot of people would justify their own selfishness in terms of the American dream in order to say they're pursuing the American dream and it's not their responsibility to take care of anybody else. Um, But that to me is a slightly different thing from the question of whether America needs unifying principles. Mm. I think that it does for exactly the reasons that you said. It's a vast, disparate country. It's the size of Europe. It makes much better sense to compare American states to European countries than it does to compare America uh, to Europe, I mean, to an individual European nation. And because the United States uniquely, I think, in human history, is the only country that only has a political experiment to hold it together. That's all it has. Any other country that is also a political experiment, like Israel or like the Soviet Union, had other things to unite it. But America is, you know, only held together by those two oceans and by the uh, the ideals that it that it professes. And so we've always needed that. America needs stories. It needs myths. I think that's one of the reasons why it's susceptible to them, Mm -hmm. um, because that's what that is what holds us together. And right now, it's no accident that we are as divided as we have ever been since the Civil War, for sure, because we're losing sight of those unifying principles, which might sound sentimental and naive, like I'm saying, if we just wave the flag, we'll do better. Obviously, that's creating its own kind of problems. But again, obviously what people are doing is arguing over what that vision of America ought to be. This is not the first time we have seen these kinds of divisions, as I as I just suggested. I mean, I think it's um, I think it's problematic when people say things like, you know, America's never been so divided. Well, we did have a civil war. Um, so <laughs> Quite famous. You know, yes. that was yeah. a problem. Um, so and, and that's partly why I wrote this book is to show that these things have happened before. Not again, not in a facile or naive way to say, oh, we can overcome it because we've overcome it before. But to say, no, these divisions have always been there. And we have always fought over immigration. We have always fought over what those national values ought to be. These tensions have always been there, and occasionally they erupt, and this is one of those times. And I say, don't take that lightly. you got to fight like hell to hold the thing together. Um, and that's what we're going to have to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, that leads us on to the, the America first bit. Mm. You mentioned in the, in the introduction about Charles um, Lindbergh and where it sort of originated. But it sort of died a bit, did it? Mm. And obviously there's been a resurgence. Mm. Like, what was its sort of trajectory, <laughs> if that makes sense? Well, I mean, again, it, you know, as with any genealogy, you can start it almost anywhere, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, one way to think about America first, uh, to me the most useful way, 
is to actually start thinking about it in terms of um, the 1840s and 1850s when the modern Republican Party was born, which was, of course, the party of Lincoln. And that was born out of a faction that was known as the Know Nothing Party and also known as the Nativist or Native American Party, which is confusing because people think it must mean indigenous peoples, but it Absolutely. did not mean they, that. I mean, they were not thought of at that <laughs> they time. Were, were that, they? Was, that was not uh, so, what they meant by Native American. They meant uh, um, descendants of early European settlers, um, but they, what they called native-born Americans. The Know Nothing Nativist movement of the 1840s and 1850s was really the first America First movement. They just didn't use the slogan quite yet, although they were about to. And it was an explicitly anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic uh, movement that was responding to large waves of European immigrants from Ireland uh, because of the famine, from the revolutions in Italy and Germany. And um, and as I say, it was explicitly and virulently anti-Catholic. And, you know, and and there was an enormous amount of violence out of that. And that, as I say, it had a great deal to do with the shaping of the modern American political parties. And it, and it played its own role in the eruption of the Civil War. So, as I say, those tensions have always been there. America first began to be associated with the post-Lincoln Republican Party um, in the 1880s. And it was just a it was a campaign slogan they started to use. It, they said, I stand for America first, last and all the time. And that was um, what it started to come out of. And then it kind of went quiet. And then Woodrow Wilson, who was a Democrat, confusingly, but he used it in a speech about America's role in the First World War, urging America to stay out of the war. Although he was an internationalist, he, he rather he was urging America to stay neutral, I should say, and defending American neutrality. Um, but that was taken up in the name of isolationism, which is a complicated story, but an important distinction to make that political neutrality. I mean, I just mentioned the waves of Germans and Irish and Italians. Well, those people were all going to have different sides on the First World War. So American neutrality uh, had had reasonable causes that were not pure isolationism. But there were also pure isolationists. And um, America first got taken up in the name of isolationism very quickly. And at the same time, there was a resurgent nativist group in the United States known as the Ku Klux Klan. And the Ku Klux Klan made America first its slogan um, all the way through the 1920s. And they marched in the name of America first, in the name of nativism, as anti-immigrants, anti-Catholics, not only anti-black. Um, of course, they're anti-Semitic as well. That you know led to enormous amounts of violence and and to great you know political and cultural tension at the best and as I say to you know outbreaks of very serious uh, violence as well. Uh, America first had this prehistory, and at the same time, just to complicate things further, um, there was this thing happening in Europe in the 1920s called fascism, mm -hmm. which was not Nazism and is an important thing to remind people, but was associated with Mussolini in the 1920s. And one of the things I found that surprised me the most was how often in the 1920s Americans explained this thing called the Ku Klux Klan, which was a kind of new thing and it was gaining power all the time through the 20s. Um, the American media would explain the Ku Klux Klan in terms of Mussolini, and they would explain Mussolini in terms of the Ku Klux Klan. So they would say, if you want to know what Mussolini stands for, well, he basically stands for America first, but in Italy, he's like Italy for, you know, Italians. And then they would say, well, if you want to know what this new thing fascism is, it's basically what the KKK stands for. We In this country, we call it America first. Uh, in this country, we say that fascism is America first. And so they instantly saw the parallels. They instantly made the connections. Now a lot of people are anxious and say that we're practicing revisionist history by likening what's happening in America now to fascism. And what I say is not only is that not revisionist history, they always saw the parallels. They were the ones pointing them out. And it's actually our historical blinkers mm. that have made us not see the connections because they were absolutely clear on it. And of course, they didn't know that fascism was going to become as bad as it was. So that, they, But they were anxious about it. This was not celebratory. Yeah. But they could see how strong the parallels were, so such that they were treated as basically synonymous in the American press around the country for years. Um, and that was, a, I thought, a really important part to bring out. Yeah, because, I mean, that, uh, the way that Trump is using the slogan now, mm. I think it refers to lots of different things. Mm. But it's interesting that when it started out, you're talking about a period before American interventionism, mm. before the Second World War, before mm. all of that sort of stuff. Mm. It is just about who's coming into your borders. Yeah. It's not even about trade. Well, it was about trade, actually. I was just okay. going to say that. It was also about trade. So that so he is reaching back to those old ideas, but 
Um, it was absolutely associated with protectionism. Harding campaigned on America first in 1920, and that was explicitly on a protectionist, isolationist platform. And um, in fact, the Harding administration tried to pass a, a perpetual tariff. They wanted to have a permanent tariff. And, they, and it was only partly because of, of the scandals that brought Harding down, the Teapot Dome scandal, that they weren't able to do that. But they also passed the anti-immigration laws of 1924, the Johnson-Reed Act, that was in force until um, Lyndon Johnson overturned it in the Reform Acts of, the, of 1965. And, and, and um, Jeff Sessions has explicitly said, he said to Steve Bannon that he wants to go back to those 1924 um, immigration levels. Steve Bannon has said that he stands for things like what he calls economic nationalism. Economic nationalism is also associated with this time. There are article, you know, there are, there are conversations um, in 1916, 1917, and, and around the debates about the Treaty of Versailles. So the arguments for keeping America out of the Treaty of Versailles were also couched in terms of America first, and they were couched in terms of what they called economic nationalism. So the two were always intertwined, protectionism and um, anti-immigration. Because, I mean, in, in a sort of quite basic way, if you look at the sort of modern definition of America first, it's, it is it is sort of just about looking, prioritising your own interests. Well, I mean... That's the benign interpretation. The benign interpretation, yes. How different is that from any other nation? Well, I mean, that was one of the things that people responded to when it first began used by um, being used by, by people like Harding. I mean, Wilson campaigned on that basis in 1916. So did his Republican opponent in 1916. They both campaigned on America first. You can have America first or you can have America first. Um, and Harding campaigned on it. And, and a lot of people were openly sarcastic about it. They said, well, nobody campaigns for putting America second. What a stupid thing to say. Um, you know, it, it goes without saying or should go without saying. And precisely because it didn't go without saying, right, is why I would argue that it is a code and it was always a code. Mm -hmm. So when people say, uh, you know, oh, well, there's this benign meaning and all we're saying is that we're going to put our nation's interests first, I say, well, nobody puts another nation's interest before their own. Like, literally nobody does that. And even the most conspiracy-oriented, you know, uh, I mean, you have to be the most conspiracy-oriented to think that, you know, people saying things like Barack Obama, you know, wanted to bring down the American government by putting, you know, I don't know, Kenya first or whatever it is that these people think. You have to be that conspiracist to think that anybody would do anything other than put their own interests first, because, again, that would be kind of human nature. Um, people tend to do that. We, I think we can kind of assume that that's mm. what people will do. So what that means is that the phrase was signaling something else. Yeah. And it was signaling these nativist, um, xenophobic. Uh, uh, it, was, it was, as I say in the book, it was a dog whistle. These, slow, these have worked in the past. Yes. So the point is people can not know the history. Yeah. But uh, can sense the meaning behind uh -huh. it from everything else. Yep. And so it just repeats. It literally uh, just repeats. And of course, some people do know. Of, yeah, so of course, yeah. The, as I say, you know, Steve Bannon's very clear about what this means. The, he reads a lot and he knows the stuff. I think he was probably reading the same stuff I was. He didn't come up with economic nationalism out of nowhere. And, and in particular, the KKK kept the phrase alive. So the KKK went underground. It disbanded officially in the 40s. But of course, it, it, it kept its little, you know, um, underground existence. And um, and that was provoked again or incited again into um, into. Uh, um, becoming a full-blown movement by the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And so that created this backlash where the, uh, the KKK, you know, rode again, as they like to say. And, you know, you can find there's all kinds of evidence from the 60s. They would say things like, you know, there, you could find flyers and handbills saying, come to a KKK America First meeting. There are commemorative coins saying KKK stands for America First. When David Duke, who's the head of the KKK today, endorsed Donald Trump, he said he stands for what I have always stood for. He stands for America First. That was a dog whistle. They know exactly what that means. So that's the point, right, is that the people who are defending their right to use it innocently are implicitly, and this is what they're not thinking about, defending their right to throw in their lot to make common cause with people who are using it to mean something very ugly indeed. And and that's my problem with the whole conversation about whether Trump supporters are racist or aren't racist. And you know, people understandably get very, very incensed about this, uh, you know, in both directions. But my view is that is that regardless of whether they're being actively racist, they're being tacitly racist and that they're willing to make common cause with a platform that incited racial violence and that has welcomed 
ex- explicit white supremacists. So my personal view as an American, as a voter, as a citizen, is you can't cherry pick the platform. You can't say, well, I like your I like your tax plan, but I don't like your racism because they're actually intertwined. And they are about supporting white privilege, as we are seeing right now in the battles in the GOP over Kavanaugh. They are about supporting white male entitlement to power and about saying that nobody else's rights matter quite so much or indeed at all. And to throw in your lot with that and then say, but I'm not but I'm not a racist and I'm not a sexist. Well, you still chose that side. Well, you and you're prepared to overlook that's exactly what I'm saying. You'll make common cause with it because you think that will be better for you because you'll get what you can out of it. And that's how racism gets supported. Absolutely. And as I say, I mean, but the the important thing here is is that we must also, in my view, we must recognize that you know those tax cuts, that that um, wealth that they are enjoying, is built on a racist structure. It is intrinsically racist. So it's it's a it's a delusion and a myth to say that you can have your tax cuts and that there's nothing racist about that. The tax cuts themselves are racist. Mm. So cheery at the moment. I'm sorry about that. No, no. Um, <laughs> so we're speaking today on on the day when um, Trump has been speaking at the UN, yeah. where he he got laughed at. Yes, he did. Which was very interesting from a group of people who do not laugh easily. Um, <laughs> there have been a lot of jokes about he made the Germans laugh, <laughs> which is terrible, terrible national stereotyping. We don't condone it, but it is a little bit. Amusing. I know lots of Germans. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> um, but he used a couple of phrases which really like chimed with lots in your book. You know this uh, this sovereignty mm. word, mm. and then the ideology of ideology of patriotism, mm. and then Macron's come out afterwards and said basically it's, this is not great. Mm. I mean, where do you where do you see this going? Nowhere <laughs> <laughs> good. Um, look, I think that you know what what he's learning and what his advisors are working out is back to this point about codes, is that they need to express these ideas in less flagrantly objectionable terms. And so they're finding ways to whitewash it. And so, you know, America First got some pushback and people are saying, oh, it's too anti-immigrant, so they call it patriotism. Um, But it's a particular kind of patriotism. It's jingoism. And it's saying that, you know, and it's nationalism. And that's a vision of, it's a kind of strongman vision of the nation state, which, of course, you know, Trump is very... Uh, sympathetic to, and it again, it's a it's a it's a platform that therefore is conducive to and has an affinity with white nationalism, with anti-immigration, with xenophobia. So the that kind of jingoism that says my team is better than your team is always on a slippery slope. To it, you know that kind of tribalism is is always heading you know in its in its worst case scenario it's heading into eugenics it's heading into uh, it's heading into biological racism it's saying my people are inherently superior to your people so the you know instead of saying you know things like what the, which the progressive side would say things like you know we're all part of mankind the John Donne uh, line you know any man's death diminishes me because I am a part because I am uh, what do you say because you know I am of mankind and you know the 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 you know. The, the company of man or, the, you know, all of those sorts of ideas and, and phrases. But we're in a time of tribal divisiveness, of um, partisan prejudice. And, um, and and people are playing to that because they can see that it's politically efficacious. And what it means is that they don't actually have to disturb the foundations of their own power. I do think it's a divide and conquer mentality. I think that, you know, they I think it sounds... Again, conspiracy-minded to say this, but I genuinely think that some of the people running the United States government right now are very consciously wanting to keep the the voters at odds with each other so that they don't actually uh, look at what's happening at the top and um, and say that this, this is what needs to stop. We need to stop the rot in our politics. But the tribalism keeps people busy and we th- and, and it makes us uh, see our opponents elsewhere. So it's like this constant project of displacement and finding a new enemy so that you don't turn on the leaders who are betraying you. Yes. And, you know, equally this, you know, this whole distrust of the media and, you know, the the use of fake news. Mm. Um, it's the classic propaganda line, isn't it? That I think people often think propaganda was there to try and get people to believe other things. Mm. But actually all it does is mean that people believe nothing. Yeah. Um, and that's the fake news argument. And that means yeah. that they can focus that on the lower levels. I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to ask you two final questions. Mm. Firstly, was there anything that you left out of the book <laughs> that you still think about or 
That's a good question. I mean, I left a lot out of the book. Um, but what are the things that I would have... I mean, the, the, of course, the, the real... You know, I mean, I left out of the book the whole post-war history of all of this. The fact that America First did actually stay alive in various... Uh, um, moments when Goldwater came on the uh, uh, came on the scene, he was called an America First politician. So I think that you know things like that would help us see those continuities even more clearly. I would have liked to have said more about Martin Luther King and his vision of the American dream. He only gets a couple of sentences, I'm afraid. And I think that to be able to to spell out some of those contexts and implications more thoroughly would have been. I would have liked it, but I think it would have thrown off the balance of the book. I mean, we did it in the interest of editing and we did it in the interest of speed, but it was so that the book, I mean, my feeling was that if you're going to write a book that is basically, you know, a history of ideas um, and a political history of ideas at that, and you want people to actually read it, you, you better keep it reasonably brief and reasonably pacey. Yeah. And so not go into all of that. Con- and, you know, and there's been so much written about Martin Luther King was what I going to say was what I would have had to say, really going to add to our understanding of that. So I tend to take the kind of the academic scholarly view is um, the bottom line of it is, our, you know, that that we we measure the um, the quality of, a, of an academic book on the basis of whether it makes a contribution to knowledge. So. I try. I always try to keep that in mind when I'm writing. Am I? Is this contributing to knowledge, or does? Or has? Have a lot of people already said this, and is this already very well known? Well, then I probably don't need to to tread over it again. Yeah, that makes sense. My last question, which is completely off topic. Okay. But you are a professor of a humanities subject. Mm-hmm. There is a big focus at the moment, especially in the UK, on STEM subjects. Mm-hmm. What do you think the role of humanities is like? Uh, studying humanities is in understanding international relations mm. and the world. Do you yeah. think there is enough focus on that or not at all too much? Or? I don't think it's off topic at all, as a matter of fact. The kind of heroine of my book is a woman called Dorothy Thompson, um, who is a, 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 a dreamy, a, rem- a remarkable journalist. <laughs> Absolutely dreamy. Isn't she fab? Yeah, I had no idea uh, about yeah. her, and now I'm in love. So, yeah, yeah, she's quite something. Yeah. yeah, and so she's this very forceful, very eloquent voice for anti fascism, for the progressive cause. And um, so you asked what, what I regret that I left out. This is something I regret that I left out, actually. But I was giving her a lot of space as it was. And so, again, I was trying to, to keep the balance of the book right. And, but basically, I just wanted to quote Dorothy Thompson at length and just be like, here, yeah. what she said. Um, <laughs> this is my book, what Dorothy Thompson yeah. said. Um, but there was in one of the um, in one of her great articles, uh, uh, Fighting Against Lindbergh and the America First Platform of, of 1940, she wrote about the fact that that the humanities were at the core of liberal democracy, and she actually wrote about the fact that Lindbergh had no sympathy with the humanities, and that he was this. She saw him as this kind of mechanistic, techno, techno, you know, technophile, and that you know, and she said he has no sympathy with the humanities, and and she and she kind of you know implies that he's he's got this affinity with the which with what was already known as the Nazi machine. And what she says is what's going to fight the Nazi machine is the is the, the liberal democracy that is upheld by the humanities. And she says the humanities is at the core of the liberal Democrat vision. I absolutely think that that's right. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the humanities are embattled at the same time that liberal democracy is embattled. I think that the, the values of the humanities are what enable people to make distinctions like whether something is fake news or uh, or evidence based it's what it's what enables argumentation that has some integrity and some inte- and some intellectual honesty to it it isn't just trying to outwit somebody by you know maneuvering them into a corner and you change your position every 5 seconds just to win the argument that there that there are these these you know actual fidelity to to notions of of truths and facts and um and critical thinking and all of those things, but also an awareness of history, um, the the understanding of different of different times and different peoples that comes through a, st- a deep study of history and literature. The the sympathy that comes um, through that people use the word empathy a lot, and I think that can muddy the waters. But just the awareness that things aren't as simple as as these slogans would have you believe. History teaches you about nuance. It teaches you about complexity. It teaches you that, you know, nothing is as easy as it appears. And yet, you know, that that we keep somehow muddling through and it teaches you wisdom and lessons about how to do that. And I always say that the 
You know, history and literature are basically 5,000 years of research into the human condition, and people are saying we shouldn't use it in the name of saying that we should research STEM. And I'm like, look, I'm all for research, and I'm all for STEM, but what I'm against is the idea that this is a zero-sum game or that these are binary. What we need is research. We need all the knowledge we can throw at the problems of the world. They are big, intransigent problems. We can't afford to throw away 50% of our knowledge and 5,000 years of thinking and wisdom. I just think it's idiotic. And as I say, I do think that those ideas are absolutely at the core of liberal democracy. So, and I, you know, I'm not saying that people who study SEM are, are, are fascist or anti-democratic, but that their approaches to um, the human world, you know, what people always say to me, you know, what are the humanities anyway? You're a professor of the humanities. And I say, well, the sciences study the natural world and the humanities study the human world. And we will never solve the problems of the human world if we don't study the human world. Well, what a great way to end. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to speak to us. And um, yeah, you should, you should buy the book. It's a cracking read and it's available in all good bookshops now. Okay, so now I'm joined by Christoph Titika, who is a lecturer at the Institute of Development Policy at the University of Antwerp in Belgium. Uh, his work is focused on governance and conflict in spaces where the state is only weakly present in areas such as Central and Eastern Africa, in particular Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. His recent article in the September issue of International Affairs is titled Understanding the Illegal Ivory Trade and Traders evidence from Uganda. Christoph, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. So I should mention at the start of this interview that uh, Christoph is joining us from Belgium and is therefore on the phone, just in case in case you worry about how it sounds. Excellent. So Christoph, please could you uh, give us a kind of rundown of what you're exploring in the article that you've just published with us? All right. So I've been working in Uganda for quite a while. And I have been focusing on the informal economy, particularly on illegal cross-border trade. That's more or less what I did my PhD on, which I did for which I did field, re field research from 2004 until 2007. Uh, that, that was for my PhD. So that was a group of traders, which I have been following ever since. So I noticed at some point, many of them, they started trading in ivory. So from around 2012 onwards up to this year, I started. I was following them and studying how they were trading in ivory. So what the article sets out to do is understand the different degrees of criminalization in the trade. So I was trying to understand, on the one hand, what were the factors enabling their trade? Why were, did they suddenly start trading in ivory? What made it easy? But on the other hand, over the years, quite a number of them they dropped out of the, the trade. So I wanted to understand what were the constraining factors, what made it more difficult. So, and in order to understand it, I make a point about different degrees of criminalization um, in which on the state plays a central role. So what the state on the one hand does, it makes, it has the power to criminalize particular commodities. So it criminalizes ivory. On the other hand, that gives states, individual states, access the power to act in that trade, to enable this, this kind of trade. So by using that argument, I look at which were the factors which pushed these actors into the trade and which pushed them out of it again. Yeah. Could you begin just by uh, giving us some context on Uganda politically, whether there's a sort of established informal economy that exists in the country? Yeah, so the informal economy in sub-Saharan Africa in general plays a very important role. So with informal e economy, um, I'm referring to the economy which is not sanctioned by state regulation, so which doesn't pay, pay tax, basically. So, And there's different kinds of informal economy, and there's different degrees of criminalization. So at one end of the spectrum, you have let's say, women traders living around border areas, which bring, let's say, vegetables from the Congolese side of the border to the Ugandan side of the border, or vice versa, to make some profit. At the 
other end of the spectrum, you've got traders which are dealing in, let's say, ivory or drugs or weapons. So both of them are the informal economy, both of them are criminalized, but there's huge differences between both and huge power differences between both. So, but the informal economy in general has always played an important role in Uganda. Um, so Uganda was ruled uh, by Idi Amin in the 70s, and then there was then it was called Magendo, and it was a basic source of survival. It was a, the survival economy, basically, for many people, because the state was largely withdrawing, so many people, they were relying on this informal economy. So throughout its history, it's always played an important role. However, as I explained also in the article, there are certain moments in history when it becomes more criminalized. And why is that? Well, the army plays an important role in that. In the 2000s, Uganda, Ugandan army went into eastern Congo and started trading in natural resources. There were the Congolese Liberation Wars, in which a lot of neighboring countries of Congo were involved, and Uganda was a major player in that. But it had major economic incentives, and many reports have shown how the Ugandan army and Ugandan elites were involved in the trade in natural resources. For example, gold or wood and so on. This trade started reducing um, once Uganda pull, pulled out of Congo. And ever since, there has been no more structural involvement of the army. However, again, in the last, let's say, 10 years, no, let's say eight years, the Ugandan army started going again to foreign missions to the Central African Republic or to South Sudan or to, to DRC. And again, this offered opportunities for individual soldiers, not the army as a whole, but as a soldier, you don't earn too much. You're often placed somewhere abroad. So what some of the soldiers did or some of the civilian supply companies who were supplying them with food, they went there supplying food and they came back bringing tusks of ivory, for example. So what I want to say is that's why you've got very different degrees of criminalization, but you also have particular episodes in history in which this criminalization became much more important, and particularly the army played a key role in that. Right, thanks. And so let's turn to ivory. Um, what was the... So, so where does the demand for ivory come from? What's, the, what's driving the economy of, of ivory trading? Yeah, so driving the demand is pretty much the demand in uh, South and Southeast Asia, particularly in China. What happened in China, you've got a growing middle class, and in China, ivory is seen as a status symbol. I mean, it's something uh, which is very culturally very well valued, and that was really driving the demand worldwide. Particularly from 2007 onwards, you see a major surge uh, in, in, in that demand. And many of that ivory came from Central Africa, but didn't exit Sub-Saharan Africa from Central Africa. With Central Africa, I mean Democratic Republic of Congo, Central African Republic, and so on. It's very difficult for ivory to leave the continent there. So Uganda became a major transit point there. There's quite a number of reports which show that much of that ivory from Congo, from Central African Republic, from other places, it was going through Uganda and then it was either leaving by air to Asia or to other places, or it was going further to Kenya and Tanzania, where, you know, it went by boat again to Asia. How does the uh, ivory trade integrate into sort of everyday Ugandan society? Does does the informal economy support you, like Ugandan society as much as the formal economy does? The ivory trade, how it relates to Ugandan society, it relates as much to Ugandan society as it does to, let's say, British or Belgian society, as in it's a very niche phenomenon. So many of the traders I followed, well, there's different categories, but many of them, they consider themselves, let's say, hustlers, meaning they deal in a variety of issues and when an opportunity comes up, they trade in that particular issue. So one of my main uh, informants, for example, he'd been de dealing in many things. He's been dealing in gold. He's been dealing in 
cocaine and so on, but suddenly ivory was the thing which, which was coming in. So rather than the commodity, it, for them it's the social infrastructure which is important, meaning their connections, their connections with somebody working in the airport, somebody working in the army, somebody working in Congo who has access to that, somebody working for the wildlife services, and so on. So it's basically it's some kind of shadow economy or some kind of underground economy which in which all these kind of criminalized goods are being traded and in which also ivory became uh, traded. So let's say for a um, female farmer somewhere in rural Uganda who's part of the informal economy, that has nothing to do with, with ivory trade. It's a very specialized and niche phenomenon of which there suddenly was a bigger supply and in which more actors became involved, but still it remains a very niche phenomenon. Could you just give us a sense, I should have asked this at the beginning, but could you give us a sense of like the size of it in sort of monetary terms? So in Kampala, in the capital, originally before 2013, traders, they the prices, they were between 150 and $200 per, ki per kilogram. Um, but then prices started dropping later on when enforcement became tighter. So the higher up the chain you go, the more expensive prices become. In the areas where they're being poached, prices are much lower. They can go as low as $60 per, per kilogram. But if you go to Asia, prices stay skyrocket. They, they go up to thousands. So is this phenomenon, is this something that... Um the government in Uganda just essentially turns a blind eye to? Or have there been sort of attempts to kind of regulate it or to crack down on on this trade? Yes. As part of my research, I've been interacting a lot with um, security officials and enforcement officials. And many of them said, well, for a long time, we honestly, we had no idea that this was being traded. We had no idea what ivory looked like. We couldn't distinguish between... Now, what's ivory and what's, let's say, a cow horn? How, how to distinguish between both of them? But from around 2012 to 13 to 14 onwards, they started being trained in these things, how to recognize them, uh, and so on. So, and since then, there has been a stronger crackdown on, on ivory. However, important for Uganda, or is that? the punishment has been very low. In neighboring countries, people, they could get long prison sentences or high monetary sentences. But in Uganda, they were very low if they were punished at all. But also this started changing from around 2015 to 16 onwards. As in, a special court was being established. There was a bigger awareness. And so the government in general was also under a lot of pressure for, to crack down on the ivory trade. Because also during my research, many of the traders said, well, many of the ivory traders, they come here to Uganda because this is the best or the easiest place to trade. Gradually, the government started you know, doing this training, started increasing its punishment, and it became more difficult for ivory traders to act in those or to operate in those circumstances. Are there, uh, are there international... Uh, attempts to crack down on this, which Uganda has been a part of? Um, there's quite some international attention to the issue of, of ivory trade. Uh, the British government actually plays a very important uh, role in that. In October, it's organizing an international conference on illegal wildlife trade in which you know action will be taken uh, against this. And then there's a variety of international platforms and initiatives. The most important one is what's called CITES, is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species uh, of, of Wildlife, of Wild Fauna and Flora. They are the major international platform which is pushing its member states to take action on that. And it was them who identified Uganda, they call it a primary country of concern, meaning there's very large quantities which are being trafficked throughout the countries, throughout Uganda, but it should take action against that. As you see it, what is the solution to this? Is it something that we can ever, that African governments can ever hope to get a grasp on? Or do you think that as long as there is demand, there will be supply? <laughs> well, there's 
both in academic and policy circles, there there's some debates on that. For example, some people say, well, this illegal wildlife trade or this ivory trade, this is being fueled by terrorism. Um, a few years ago, particularly in 2013, there were a whole range of reports which were saying that the ivory trade and illegal wildlife trade was basically financing terror organizations such as Boko Haram or the Lord's Resistance Army. Quite some research has shown that this is not the case, as in that these uh, accusations have been inflated. Other policy and academic reports say, well, driving this illegal trade is organized crime. Um, for example, there's a lot of um, testing, DNA testing of confiscated ivory, and this shows that the quantities which are being traded, they are getting bigger and bigger. So it's only organized crime, uh, let's say, bigger criminal organizations which can traffic this. But also, you know, what, what I've encountered in my research is no such thing such as big organizations or criminal organizations, but very many individual traders which continuously look for opportunities, which continuously try to sell their ivory to high-level actors and, and so on. So for me, it's part of a more global problem, which is not limited to ivory alone, but it's basically what this trade does. It looks for states or places where it's easiest to traffic these, these things. So places where corruption is bigger, places where it's much easier to bribe customs or airport officials to get these um, commodities out. So much of my and other research has shown that, well, if you want to tackle these dynamics, you need to look at governance dynamics, you need to look at corruption, and so on. Well, we're coming towards the end now, but I just wondered if we could focus maybe on um, the traders themselves, the individuals themselves. Now, you mentioned that some of these, some of the traders that you spoke to are former traders, that they don't do it anymore. Um, what's for, What were the reasons behind them sort of exiting the trade yeah so there's let's say that there's different categories of traders so the first categories of traders let's say were traders who didn't really have a big history or a long history in this kind of criminal economy but suddenly they had an uncle who i don't know was supplying food to the army in congo or in central african republic and had access to ivory and they were trying to sell that ivory the first couple of years that went well but suddenly they lost a lot of money. It was being confiscated or somebody cheated them or they started confiscating more. So it, it's a very hostile environment in, in which to trade. So many, they lost hope when, when it became more difficult and, and they abandoned the trade. A second category were the traders I mentioned before, which basically they deal in a wide range of commodities, whether it's cigarettes or gold or minerals, they have been active in this trade for a while. So around 2011, 2010, etc., many of them started trading um, in, in ivory. And again, the first couple of years, this trade was relatively easy, but the higher the enforcement, the more criminalized this trade became, the more power became concentrated in a more limited number of actors. So this kind of illegal economy, it's a very illiberal market in the sense that you need high-level connections with security officials and so on to smuggle this trade or smuggle the commodity throughout the country. So they left the trade because it became monopolized by sets of elite actors and they were pushed out of this trade. How do you see this developing in the sort of near future? Do you think this trade is likely to um, continue to grow in Uganda? Do you think that other countries may become more attractive places for this trade to be done? Or do you think um, it's just going to kind of be a sort of status quo and that this will just continue? Well, so CITES, which I mentioned before, so they've been collecting statistics on the um, trade in, in ivory and illegal ivory. And these statistics show that so from 2007 onwards, this trade was skyrocketing, but from 2007, 11, 12 onwards, it slowly started reducing. States have become more successful in confiscating this, this ivory. 
So for me, for Uganda, it's hard to know whether the overall quantity actually is is reducing or or not. I only see that another kind of actors have taken over this trade, but it's hard to tell whether um, the overall quantity is reducing or not. What I do see is that the higher the awareness and the higher the crackdown is that it's really worked. It really pushed a lot of traders out of this criminal business. So training and awareness and strong punishment, it, it does work. The question is if it will be sufficient to stop this bigger flow of, or this continuing flow of illegal ivory, which is coming out of Central Africa, to, to stop. Christoph Titeka, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, um, please rate and subscribe to us and follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews. But in the meantime, I am off to find a beer. Excellent, yes. (laughs) Fringe beers, Fringe beers. Brilliant. Um, Yes, and uh, yeah, that's it. Enjoy. (laughs) Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Rimston, and you've been listening to a very Tory (laughs) undercurrent.